Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Modern Day Debate. Thrilled to have you here for this exciting topic. Controversial, to be sure. And if this is your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we're thrilled to have you here. No matter what your position is on these issues, we try to be as nonpartisan as possible. And we're trying to build an intellectually diverse culture here at the channel. So with that, we want to let you know each of the speakers have their links down in the description below. So please keep that in mind throughout the debate. If you're like, man, I'm totally digging his arguments. That's really interesting. You can check it out. Or if you're like, oh, that Tom Jump is back. You know what? He's going to grow on you. You're going to see, you're, you're going to be able to go to his channel and you know, you can maybe troll him a little bit in his comments, but eventually you're going to fall in love with him. Terrific dude. So with that, want to also mention, we got a couple of upcoming debates we're very excited about. First is, we've mentioned this before, we are uh, thrilled to say the least. Dr. Robert M. Price, uh, previously debated William Lane Craig, Bart Ehrman, he is going to be on debating Jonathan Sheffield, and that is going to be the question of whether or not a historical intellectual case can be made for Christianity. So we are thrilled for that one. That's Friday, April 12th at 8 p.m. So don't want to miss that one. And then not only that, but we have another one that's actually, I should say technically, we want to let people know about debates happening on other channels. Is evolution scientific? This is going to happen on Standing for Truth's channel. Uh, he's been really supportive of the channel. He's been willing to come over here and moderate when I wasn't able to make it, and he's just done it for free. And so um, even if you have not helped out this channel, we do want to plug debates at other channels so that way you, the audience, can have the choice of where you'll view debates. And so just want to let you know that one is going to be tomorrow afternoon, and that is linked down in the description so you can see Snake was right and uh, Kent Hovind tomorrow afternoon at the link in the description box. So with that, let's jump right into it. Stoked to have these gentlemen here. As mentioned, they're linked in the description. And we're going to have a pretty informal kind of debate today in the sense that we'll have opening statements. Should be roughly 10 minutes. There's a little bit of flexibility there. 
followed by open civil discourse. So just a conversation as I think most people enjoy that most. And then we'll jump right into the Q&A. If you have questions, just put an at modern day debate in the live chat and then who the question is for, as well as your question, we will compile them and ask them at the end. And uh, almost wrap super chats. If you have a question or if you have a comment, you can actually ask a com or uh, state a comment during the question and answer that you'd like one of the debaters to respond to. And automatically all super chat uh, comments or questions will be put at the top of the list as we read through during the Q&A. So with that, let's not take any more time. Thrilled to have both of these guys here. Thanks for coming on both Tom Jump and Tim. I appreciate uh, not only have these gentlemen come on today, but they've also been supportive of the channel before. You've seen each of these gentlemen here before, and so we thank you for coming back, guys. And with that, we are going to let Tim have his opening statement of 10 minutes. And for that, I am setting the timer. So Tim, I will start it on your first word. So you can start whenever you are ready. Well, thanks for having me on the channel. Um, pleased to be back and pleased to discuss this topic. I want to begin by just expressing an area of what I think is going to be common ground. And that is basically that uh, the real question that we're debating is how much regulation there should be. Um, I, I don't know of anybody who believes that there should be no gun control at all in the sense that not even you know dangerous persons or children, uh, no, there, there should be no restrictions for them. So I think the real question here is, how restrictive should we have or should gun control measures be? And the position that I'm going to defend is that there should be minimal gun control. So uh, we can talk about the various nuances of that, but generally I am skeptical of gun regulation. So I am going to defend two claims, and these two claims are as follows. First, that the best research does not show that guns are associated with more violence or more suicides. Second, that even if the research does show that guns cause more harm than have benefits, we should still have relatively minimal gun restrictions. So let me turn to the first claim. There's a lot of research out there on the effects of guns, and some of it's good research, some of it's bad research. The, what, what a lot of people try to do in these debates is that, well, they find a study or they find you know, five, six, 10, 20 studies, and they all just say, well, look, here, ten, here's 10 studies, here's five studies, look at how they support my position. Well, when evaluating studies, we have to look at not just what the study concludes, but the methodology behind the study, whether the study is a strong one, whether it controls for you know confounders, whether it controls for reverse causation. And on that topic, the best research shows that guns do not increase crime. There was a study done, more like a meta-analysis done a few years ago in the uh, Journal of Criminal Justice, I believe, that looked at basically around 40 different studies. and the effects of gun prevalence on um, crime. And these 40 studies were assessed by three methodological criteria. First, whether they used a valid measure of gun ownership. Second, whether they controlled for more than just, whether they controlled for a handful of confounders. And third, 
whether they controlled for reverse causation. That is, instead of guns causing crime, gun ownership being a response to more crime, which might give the appearance that guns cause crime. And the meta-analysis found that out of all the studies, the methodologically strongest ones, i.e. the ones that controlled or the ones that took into account all three factors, did not find that guns increased crime. They all found that the strongest studies all found that guns had no effect on crime either way. And so many, many, of, many of the studies out there right now are rather poor quality. They don't control for uh, sufficient confounders. They don't take into account gun, the uh, valid measure of gun prevalence, or they don't control for reverse causation. And once you take those things into account, virtually all studies find that guns don't have an effect on crime. What about something like suicide? Well, 2019 uh, literature review published in Social Science Quarterly looked at the findings of about 25 or 30 different studies showing the relationship between guns and suicide. And this study found that the strongest, the strongest of those studies found no association between guns and total homicide. Now there was an association between gun ownership and firearm homicide, but there is there was no there was no uh, relationship between gun ownership and total homicide. So there was obviously a lot more nuances, but I think the best um, evidence suggests that guns don't cause more crime or guns don't cause increased suicide. Now, what about the benefits of guns? Well, I want to talk mainly about uh, the number of defensive gun uses. There's been about 20, 22, 23 different surveys done on the amount of defensive gun uses. And these surveys differ on you know, the, the methodology they use, but all these surveys found that defensive gun uses are more common than criminal uses of guns. Um, there are about, according to the Bureau of Justice statistics, about 350,000 criminal uses of guns each year, whereas all of the defensive gun use surveys find that there are around 700,000 to 3 million defensive uses of guns each year, depending on uh, the methodology used in the questions you asked. The strongest of these surveys conducted by Gary Kleck and Mark Gertz found that there are around 2.5 million defensive gun uses each year, which are a lot more than the amount of criminal uses. So that's my first claim. But let's suppose for the sake of the argument that everything I just said is incorrect, that guns do in fact cause more crime and that there are more harms or there, there are more criminal uses of guns than defensive gun uses. What should our gun regulation look like? Well, I think even if the harms outweigh the benefits, there should still be relatively minimal gun regulation. Here's why. So he, here's the argument for owning guns. Basically, I have a right to life. Uh, the right to life is my most important right. The right to life entails a right to defend myself, a right to protect my life, because my right to life would be meaningless if I didn't have the right to protect myself. The right to defend myself, in turn, is the right to do something to protect myself. I can't defend myself unless I do something, whether I use my arms, legs, uh, baseball bat, knife, whatever. And so the right to defend yourself presupposes the right to a reasonable means of self-protection. And the question at this point is, well, okay, what is a reasonable means of self-protection? Well, virtually 
all the studies on this topic show that guns are very effective at reducing injury and property loss when used in self-defense. And I can go over the evidence for this um, later on in more detail. But here, here's, the, here's the, the point I want to uh, emphasize. The nature of a right, a right by definition is something that's supposed to resist appeals to utility. So for example, um, I can't kill somebody, I can't intentionally kill somebody, even if it would save five lives. Uh, let's, let's say that I'm a doctor, right? And I have five patients in need of a transplant. Some healthy guy walks into the hospital. Am I allowed to kill him and take his organs to save the five people in the name of the greater good? Well, no. His right to life overrides appeals to utility. Rights are what philosopher Ronald Borkin called trump cards. Rights have this function of resisting appeals to utility. So if my right to life is unrelenting and absolute, even if uh, it would be more beneficial to five people that it be violated, then so are my derivative rights. Um, in order for my right to self-defense to be meaningful, it must apply to all cases in which my right to life holds. And if my right to life is so strong that I may that somebody may not violate my right to life to save five people who need organ transplants, then my right to self-defense also uh, resists appeals to countervailing harms. And the same thing with an appeal, same thing with my right to a reasonable means of self-defense. If my right to life resists appeals to negative utility, then so must my right to self-defense, and by extension, so must my right to a reasonable means of self-defense because I can't defend myself unless I am afforded some means of defending myself. So the claim here is that even if guns do cause more harms than benefits, there would still be a presumption in favor of reasonably permissive gun laws because of the nature of rights as uh, utility trumpers or rights as something that hold even in the face of negative consequences. Let me give you another example. Um, suppose that there's an out of control trolley, right? And if there's nothing done on, about this trolley, it will run over and kill five people. Now you happen to notice a very fat man on the track. If you push this fat man in front of the track, it will stop the trolley and, and save the five people. Would it be okay to push that fat man in front of the track? Well, no, his right to life is so strong that it holds even in the face of the greater good. And so if the right to life holds in the face of negative consequences, it must also hold, or its derivative rights must also hold because those derivative rights are in service to the right to life. And that includes the right to a reasonable means of self-defense. And so the real question in the gun control debate is whether or not guns are a reasonable means of self-defense. And virtually every study on this topic shows that they are. And with that, um, I yield my time. All right. Uh, thanks for having me on, James. Always a pleasure. So the question today is, would more gun regulation be good? And I'm going to, of course, take the position. I say, yes, more gun regulation would be good. Uh, how do I come to this conclusion? Well, let's look at the consequences of the current gun regulation. There are two to three accidental deaths by gun every day. There are 55 suicides by gun every day. There are 32 homicides by gun every day. Uh, stats from 2013 means that every year that's approximately 21,000 suicides, 11,000 homicides, and about 700 deaths from guns from other causes.
And there are approximately two times as many gun injuries as there are for gun deaths. Now, is this normal worldwide? Well, no. From a paper, the violent death rates of the U.S. compared with other high-rate, high-income OCE countries, 2010, worldwide, all people killed by guns, 82% were in the United States. All women killed by guns, 90% were in the United States. All kids under 14 killed by guns, 90% were in the United States. All kids 15 to 24 were killed, 92% were in the United States. Homicide rates and suicide rates in the U.S. are about three times higher than other developed nations because guns make the action easier to perform. You can simply just check the Wikipedia on these for a list of countries with intentional homicide and list of countries by suicide rate. Other industrialized countries have about the same general levels of rapes, burglaries, robberies, assaults in the U.S., but gun violence or murders and suicide rates are significantly higher in the U.S. than other developed countries. Having a gun in your home is associated with increased risk of homicide. All of the gun deaths in homes only are about 3% from legal forms of self-defense, whereas 77% were from being shot by a family member or a relationship. That means to defend your home, only about 3% of people shot in homes are from the kind of self-defense of intruders. 77% come from being shot by another family member or a relationship. All of these deaths also have the added cost of loss of productivity and the medical cost of having to transport all these people back and forth and to treat them, which adds up to billions of dollars of cost. Do you see a pattern here? If we apply more gun regulations, even if it only applies to law-abiding citizens, we will save thousands of lives and prevent impulsive suicides, which make up the majority of gun deaths in the country. Gun violence in the home by family members will be decreased. Unintentional gun deaths and numerous other examples of deaths by legal ownership of guns will be decreased. So there is clearly reason to increase gun regulation in these areas. Now, it is often argued that if we ban guns, it will only affect legal citizens and only the criminals will then have guns. This is not true. If we cut the supply and manufacturing of legal availability of guns, which is required a great deal of maintenance, the guns themselves will decay and break down and go unreplaced, leading to an eventual decline of the number of guns for criminals as well. So banning guns also affects criminals after some delayed rate after taking them away from the legal public. If banning guns resulted in more criminals with guns, why do Australia and UK have knife problems and not gun problems? They banned guns. If it was true that only the criminals are left with guns, then all the criminals in those places should have guns, and they don't. So that seems to refute that point completely. If more guns made, place, made someplace safer, then America should be the safest place on Earth. Clearly it's not. It's true that the number of guns or gun regulations do not always result in lower crime. What leads to, le to least gun violence is actually the most guns, but with the highest levels of regulation. If we look at Israel and Switzerland, they have the highest rates of gun ownership and also some of the lowest rates of gun crime. And what regulations do they have? Well, they have mandatory military service, which entails background checks. Switzerland has an 18 to 21 week boot camp and 300 days of additional long-term service. Israel has two years and eight months of, for men of mandatory service. The government owns all of the guns and you apply for a loan from the gun. So these countries have the most stringent gun laws anywhere with the exception of like outright bans of the UK and Australia, but have the least gun crime. So does heavy regulation, heavy regulation work? Well, hell yeah, it does. More gun regulation does not necessarily mean less guns. The problem is that our government does not fund research into gun violence and proper gun regulation. And so the debate on gun regulation is full of idiots on both sides who don't know what they're talking about and propose bad ideas that don't work. The biggest problem in answering the question of gun regulation is the unreliable, is the unbelievable lack of good research on this area. Our government does not fund gun violence research due, to large, due in large part to lobbying of private groups like the NRA. 
first and foremost, we need a government to fund research into effective gun regulations so that we can know what regulations work and how to effectively implement them. I believe this will be something like Switzerland or, or Israel, which have lots of guns, but also extremely heavy regulations. So should we have more gun regulations? Absolutely. But that do doesn't mean that we need to take people's guns away. Both the common sense gun regulation of the left and the you can take them from my cold dead hands regulation of the right are both stupid. What we need is a better understanding of what regulations actually work and how to implement them. Sorry, I still had myself on mute. Thanks for people letting me know in the live chat. Uh, with that, thank you very much for the opening statements. By the way, in case anybody's wondering, I, I mentioned the debaters beforehand. I was like, uh, your guys' stances are nuanced, and so I just put more gun control or pro more gun control next to Tom's name. Uh, obviously, Tom doesn't think that any type of suggested gun control would be good. This is just kind of a general theme that I was trying to say, because sometimes people drop into the debate midway, and it helps them kind of catch on right away in terms of who's arguing for what. So with that, open discussion time. Thrilled to hear you guys kind of share here. And the floor is yours. Sure, and if, if, you, right. if you want to, uh, sorry, did I, did, I, did I interrupt you? Oh, I, I was gonna go into some questions right away. If you do oh. have some questions. Uh, you, can, you can go first. I, I went first in the opening statement, so it's only fair to you. All right, yeah, sure. So you said the total number of suicides uh, was not correlated to guns, is that correct? The best research because... seems to, sh well, the best research shows that guns are associated with firearms homicide, but the be it doesn't seem to uh, be associated with total homicide, at least not once you take into account um, a valid measure of gun prevalence, uh, uh, valid sample size, and controlling for more than just a handful of confounders. Do you remember the name of that study? Uh, I can actually pull it up. Actually, I think uh, I yeah, it was just, if you don't on the top of your head, that's totally fine. No, My point was that, no. that that study is in fact incorporating uh, a comparison of all countries, not just developed nations. And when you compare developed nations, the American uh, gun violence, death rates and suicide rates are actually two to three times higher than other developed nations. So your statistics that you presented are only applied when you skew the data by applying in all countries, not just developed countries. Uh, that study didn't, well, I mean, I, I don't think you can critique the study and if you, if you haven't, if you don't know the studies that were assessed, that's, that's not what the study looked at. The study looked at a variety of US and uh, national studies that assessed the uh, suicide rate um, associated with uh, and that, that's associated with the gun ownership and um, your criticism just doesn't apply to the study I can give you the name of the study and you can look it up yeah absolutely uh, I'm going off of the other yeah. studies I've read that come okay. to similar conclusions and so, they always make the mistake incorporating all countries the study's titled macro level research on the effect of firearms prevalence on suicide rates a systematic review and new ever and new evidence um, published 2019 in Social Science Quarterly. All right, I will check that out. But yeah, from my understanding, the gun violence from the studies I've seen, the amount of suicides and deaths and or murders in general in the United States are higher than other countries, while other crimes are all lower. Well, uh, sure. And it only. Yeah. Well. That... It... Sorry. Well, okay. So that that can be true, but it, it wouldn't imply that gun prevalence is responsible for that. There, there are factors you have to control for, one being uh, cultural differences, another, is be, another being substitution effect. 
And one, if you just take a look at a raw comparison of data, it might suggest um, that there is an association. And that's what um, people like David Hemingway have done. But Hemingway, most of his studies don't really control for confounders that do have a statistically significant effect. In fact, Hemingway's research is discussed specifically in this meta-analysis. And it's among the worst quality because Hemingway just looks at the raw data comparison and he doesn't perform uh, controls and he doesn't he doesn't rely on adequate sample sizes. At least in one of in one of and I, I don't know what studies you're referencing specifically, but I'm using Hemingway as a foil. In one of Hemingway's studies, his sample size was about um, ten people. For and he used that he used that to extrapolate about and to extrapolate conclusions about an entire state. So it's not the, the best research, according to this meta-analysis at least, shows that um, gun ownership is associated with firearm homicide, but not total homicide. So one of the ones I'm looking at is uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, Handgun Regulations, Crime, Assaults, and Homicide, Comparing Comparable Cities as Respective, or as Comparable cities in as many respects as possible, which compared Vancouver and Seattle and found that uh, the gun ownership in Vancouver was 12% and Seattle it was 41% and there were three many three times as many gun-related homicides and five times as many murders or something, or maybe I got those backwards, in comparing these two cities. So they did actually find there was, in fact, a correlation between the number of guns and yeah. the number of deaths. But what, study. what confounders did they control for? Uh, you'd have to read the study, but they did quite a number of them. I think it was uh, age, alcohol use, uh, income level, sex, uh, and, and a number of other things. I can't remember. Well, off the top age, of my head, income level, and sex are not statistically associated with firearms and suicide. You have it's not the matter. Wait, of whoa, how whoa, many, yes, they are. I have no idea how many studies or how many confounders you control for. It's a matter of whether the, the confounders you control for are in fact associated with firearms and or with, with suicide and, and firearm prevalence. And so you can, let's say somebody controls for 50 confounders, right? It, it, as, if those 50 confounders aren't uh, related to firearms or suicide, then it practically amounts for nothing. You have to control for relevant confounders. And most of the studies that did control for confounders did not control for relevant confounders. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. As I have, there's a, the National Academy of Sciences has done studies on these repeatedly, and this is the New England Journal of Medicine. So, unless you can actually prove that these are in fact invalid, then I'm pretty sure well, that's incorrect. The National Academy of Sciences. Greg Sorry. Greg Click, Greg Click is one of the ones that talks about how some of the studies have had incomplete methods, and I know what he's talking about, and I didn't include those studies in here. So, okay. none of the studies he references are the ones that I'm referencing. Okay, well, you mentioned the National Academy of Sciences. They, they published, I believe it was about 10 years ago, a very comprehensive analysis of the effects of gun laws and you know, that, that kind of stuff. And basically what they found is that no definitive conclusions can be reached. We can't conclude that guns do cause crime and we can't conclude that guns uh, deter crime or get guns reduce crime. And so, you want to take the the National Academy's approach, we should just be agnostic about everything. Um, I think right. I totally. I actually do. I actually do agree with their study. That was one of my conclusions in my uh, opening statement: is that the first step we need is better research funded by the government to really establish what the the true best regulations would be and what is the best way to implement them. Because the biggest problem in this field is the fact that we don't have enough good research in this field. 
So I definitely agree with the National Academy of Sciences conclusion on that. Okay, well, if you take the agnostic approach, where we don't know either way, why not err on the side of liberty and say, hey, we don't have enough research, uh, but we do know guns um, have you know, defensive benefits. Why not err on the side of liberty and let people own guns or at least have less restrictive gun laws until there is more research done? Well, that, I, that's exactly my plan. We should or we shouldn't change the gun laws until the research is done. We should do the research first and then see well, what works and then change the laws to meet what the research says. Now, I would actually cite examples like Switzerland and Israel who have significantly more restrictive gun laws and significantly less gun violence, even though they have more guns. So I think it's definitely possible to make more restrictive gun laws and still have a still have guns and still have a decrease in violence. So it is definitely possible to have uh, more regulations without taking people's guns away. Okay, uh, I wanted to ask you about the number of defensive gun uses. All the best research on this topic suggests, and, and depending on the methodology, the numbers differ, but they all 2022 surveys find that there are more defensive gun uses than criminal uses of guns each year. Wouldn't that show that what we have right now on, if, if you just want to look at the compare the, the numbers, what we have right now is okay in terms of facilitating um, proper use of guns. Well, the first thing is those stats are actually wrong. But even if I granted those stats were right, only about like again, like again, I said, seventy-seven percent of all in-home gun violence happened between a family member and a relationship. So even if that was true, that the greater risk here is that someone in your family is going to shoot you, not an intruder is going to shoot you. Well, I'm talking about point. defensive gun use in general, like all defensive gun. So you're talking about um, family violence with firearms. Okay, but you might you have to weigh that against um, all of the defensive uses of firearms, whether that be, you know, in the right. home, outside right. the home, whatever. Well, I apologize. That was my first point is that the stats you listed are wrong. So the stats okay. you listed of the, the it was 700,000 to 3 million or something, those come from the 1900 National Surveys. Do you know what the sample size was on that? Uh, well, actually, let me, so there's, this is an interesting thing. The best, the best uh, high quality survey done on defensive gun use utilized about, I think, a thousand or either a thousand or 1400 in the sample size. Now, there has been recent research um, that was uncovered. So in 1996, 1997 and 1998, the CDC in their behavioral risk factor surveillance uh, analysis asked the question of defensive gun uses. And those three surveys had enormously large sample sizes and they all found that there are a large number of defensive gun uses. I will agree, a lot of the surveys on the number of defensive gun uses don't utilize or don't have the best methodology. But the fact that- I'm all specifically talking about the CDC one. The CDC one, do you know how many respondents actually said they use a gun which, in defense? What which, was the which, number? Which CDC study? All of them. The, the, the raw number? The raw number. How, like of all the respondents who they polled, how many actually said that they have used gun in a defensive encounter? Probably around 90 to 100 around that. 66. 66, okay. So well, 66 people said that they used gun, uh, used gun in a defensive encounter in the CDC uh, paper, in the CDC research. And then you're extrapolating that to get to the larger public to try and get a number of about 750,000 to 3 million. That doesn't work. 
that's a too small of a sample size to be able to be that generally used. I have a I have a much better study uh, from the National Crime and Victimization Survey, Cook et al. 1997, who said that the annual defensive uses is about a hundred thousand, which is half as many as the number of I forget what the other statistic was. Uh, 200 offensive uses. There are 200,000 offensive uses and only 100,000 defensive uses based on this study, which well, is far more credible than a larger sample size. The sample size of 1,000 total in the uh, NSDS is completely fine if you stratify the, the uh, population. Obviously, there's going, to be, there's going to be false positives. There's also going to be false negatives, too. And so, sure, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a small number. But as long as you have a representative population, I don't see why that's a problem. Now, you mentioned the National Crime Victimization Survey. The National Crime Victimization Survey can't count defensive uses of guns because uh, respondents were never asked about it. They were merely required to, they merely had the option of volunteering whether they used a gun in self-defense. They were never, as part of the survey, they were never actually asked, did you use a gun in self-defense? Rather, what the survey did was they, they um, assessed uh, victimization numbers and facts and statistics and whatever. And then they asked the respondent, did you in any of these cases use a gun in self-defense? And if they did, they could volunteer that information. But so, so the problem is if you don't ever actually ask about defensive gun uses, you're, by, you're going to undercount it because the only people who answer are going to be the ones who volunteer it. And so the 100,000 number is, almost certainly uh, an undercount of uh, defensive gun uses. The, the way to do it is to actually construct a survey where you ask people, did you use a gun in self-defense and then make the necessary adjustments to, to uh, extrapolate the uh, uh, findings to the nation as a whole. Well, I would still, I can say that your sample size of 66 respondents who responded that they use gun gun defense in or use guns in a defensive case is way too small a sample size and if you're extrapolating that it's just purely faulty data that's not even a reasonable conclusion to make so i would completely reject your study and i believe that the national crime victim survey is significantly better significantly more rigorous well the like fact I said, that the national crime victimization survey never asks as a part of the survey whether you use a gun in self-defense you merely have the opportunity to volunteer that information so that the number is going to be severely undercounted because it's it was never designed to measure defensive gun use all the surveys that do measure defensive gun use uh whether it be the CLEC survey 1995 CLEC survey or the um uh cdc uh behavioral risk factor analysis study all of them find consistently that there are more defensive gun uses than criminal uses of guns Right. And I'm pretty sure I'm just going to reject everything you said there, because, again, I think your sample size is completely skewed. And I, again, think that your characterization of the National Crime Victimization Survey is incorrect. They acted in a sufficient way in order to be justifiable for the conclusions that they were drawing. So, again, but, but then this was not related to my original point, which is that we should have higher, regular, or higher gun regulation because we can see it effective, being effective in other countries. And we definitely need more research on the topic. So well, again, I, 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 I just don't know how you're supposed to count defensive gun uses from a survey if the survey never actually asks whether you used a gun in self-defense. That's almost certainly going to result in an undercount if you rely solely on volunteer reports.
because it's a more rigorous survey than the one that you're citing with 66 respondents. So it's right. You're right. It is not perfectly accurate. And as I admitted earlier, that we do not have enough good research on this topic. But yours is worse than mine. Um, not so. The problem is not so much with the sample size. The, the issue is whether the sample size is representative of the population. And in the Kleck and Gertz study, the out of the total sample size, uh, out of the total samples, the efforts were made to make sure that a representative population was used, and not just in the Kleck and. I mean, so the Kleck and Gertz survey is one example. Um, I assume that's the one you're talking about. The, uh, the other surveys also rely on uh, representative um, uh, populations or representative um, samples in finding the numbers that they did. So I just don't see how that's a problem. Because it's, again, that's too small of a sample size. What why, you're characterizing is, it, is just wrong. If, if, if it's stratified and it's representative, people, why is that too small? Because it's not. You can't make a representative calculation with such a small sample size. I mean, there's a reason that we don't have enough research on this topic and that the consensus is, like on the National Academy of Sciences, we don't know because we don't have enough research. You're using really bad small sample size research and trying to extrapolate that to the country, which does not work. It just objectively fails. That's a bad method. Well, again, I just don't see the problem if the sample size is stratified and if, it's, if, it's, if measures are made to make sure that the that the original popula the whole population is representative of because that's how that's how they do you know political surveys right they pull a thousand two thousand people and then they come up with uh, numbers that are within you know plus or minus three or four percent right that's that's basically how all surveys are done you can't it, it's very difficult to survey you know one hundred two hundred thousand people um, uh, and so that's that's why most pollsters do can to to make up for that defect, they um, apply techniques to make sure that the uh, uh, population is representative, even though it's small. And if you're comparing your research, which is supposed to be a scientific paper uh, to a national survey, then you have terrible standards. Like if you want this to be a rigorous result that actually gives us some indication of how policy should be made, you need an actual scientific survey here that's a real study, not just a couple surveys. Well, it was, if you read the Kleck and Gertz paper, it was a very rigorously done survey. The, the, the researcher hired a professional survey firm. Uh, they chose very carefully the questions they used, and they chose very carefully the persons who would be a part of the study. So it's not as if they just, you know, picked off Joe Schmo from the street and said, hey, did you use a gun in self-defense? Efforts were made to make sure that the the survey was done properly. And yet all of the consensus in the academic field reject that conclusion saying it's completely overblown. Well, I don't, I don't know about uh, uh, that. What the consensus relies upon is the National Crime Victimization Survey. But again, as I pointed out, you can't use that as a comprehensive measure of the total number of defensive gun uses. At best, it provides a a lower lower bar of the uh, fewest amounts of defensive gun use there had there there had or the least amount of defensive gun uses there had to be, but it can't it can't be used to establish the total number or the upper upper um, limit of defensive gun uses. Well, again, I agree with you that these are terrible, terrible studies, and we don't have nearly enough research on this, but I agree with the consensus's conclusion that the natural crime victimization study is a better representation. 
well, how, again, how is it a better representation if you never asked about whether you used a gun in self-defense as part of the study? It, it seems to me it's that if you don't ask that, you can never actually measure defensive gun ownership or uses, sorry. Because yours is just so terribly bad and small, it just doesn't mean anything. It's just useless. Well, well, okay, we're going to go why, that's, circles, why, but, but that's why the academic consensus doesn't use it. Well, again, I, I think the reason for rejecting the um, NSDS findings are going to be more partisan than actually... Um, so I, I think the reasons for rejecting are more partisan than, you know, scholarly. Because I, I, the, the, the study holds up under scrutiny. The, the sample size is representative. Um, efforts were made to reduce false positives. And it is the most... Um, the, the Kleck and Gertz survey is the, the best quality research done on the amount of defensive gun use. I will add, a year after uh, Kleck published his findings, Philip Cook uh, at, uh, I think, Duke University, who questioned Kleck's findings, commissioned a study of his own uh, through the Department of Justice and the National Police Foundation. And lo and behold, Philip Cook found that um, he basically replicated Kleck's results. So it's not as if um, this is just a one-off thing. The fact that you have multiple surveys showing that there are a lot of defensive gun uses, I think, counts quite a bit when it's kind of strange that the National Crime Victimization Survey is the only outlier. But well, I, I would can, say that it seems what we, go ahead. We can I mean we can we can quibble about this, um, but I, I don't think you're gonna change your mind, neither will I. So um, why don't we move on then? Yeah, I guess so. Do you have any questions? Um, so what, so I'm going to actually turn the light on because it's actually getting dark outside. I'm going to ask you though, uh, what gun regulations do you think would be permissible right now? Uh, can you still hear me when you're not in front of the TV? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So I, I, I want to take the tentative position and say, I do not know. I say, I want to do more research. The number one thing is do the research, fund the research, and that whatever results those show should be the ones that we should advocate for. Now, I would advocate for more training. Uh, I like the idea of mandatory military service. I think that's a really great idea, and it would probably benefit a lot of people, even though it's not very moral. I think that would be good. So those are, so my, my number one position is do the research wait for what the research says and extreme ideas like mandatory military service but there's other things there are a lot of surveys that show or a lot of research that shows that there are effective gun control measures like uh the journal of epidemiological reviews shows that australia uh, brazil and colombia all implemented gun gun restriction laws and saw a decrease in crime um more background checks can result in a decrease in crime the rand corporation showed that child prevention, child access prevention laws work, background checks work in the RAND Corporation gun policy in America 2018. The Journal of American Medical Association shows that safe storage laws prevent child mortality. So those work with uh, decreasing unintentional shootings by 23%. That's pretty significant. The Journal of Urban Health showed that uh, effects to repeal Missouri's handgun purchaser licensing laws, the removing the background checks, actually had an increase in homicide rates. The Journal of American or the American Journal of Preventative Medicine shows that firearm death rates are associations with high level of firearm purchasing levels of firearm purchasing background checks. 
there is an association between firearm death rates and the lack of purchasing background checks or background checks. So there are lots of studies that show that there are certain implementations that can work right now. But again, I think that we don't have enough research to know they really effectively work. But those would essentially be the ones I would probably go for would be background checks, child access prevention, storage laws, those kinds of things. Okay, now, suppose the research, and this is just um, so I can understand your position better, suppose the research turned out the other way, would you, so in terms of, let's say that we did research on the number of the further research on the number of defensive gun uses, and it came out conclusively that there are actually more defensive gun uses than criminal uses of guns. Uh, what would your reaction be to that? Or let's say that we found that um, concealed carry laws reduce crime. What, what uh, would you be in favor of the status quo, or would you be in favor of perhaps repealing some regulations? What would your position be in that case? Because you, well, in your first example, Go on. Sorry. Well, in your first example, where you said that if there are more defensive uses of guns than offensive uses, I'm not a big fan of that one because that's a like, does it really save lives to do that or not? So if it saved lives, then yes, I'm for it 100%. I don't know if that one would save lives or not. The second example, if concealed carry laws did decrease crime, then I would be yes, I would be absolutely for it 100%. Okay. Um, well, so you mentioned the, the point about saving lives. Uh, there is, I mean, guns are useful, not just for saving lives, but also for warning off robbery, warning, warning off rape. So, and, and the vast majority of studies on the effects of guns when used in self-defense find that guns are very useful at reducing injury, reducing property loss, um, robbery resistance, rape resistance. And so it shouldn't be taken into account those things also at what, besides just lives saved? Absolutely, but you have to also incorporate how many people's lives are we gonna save if we take away guns? Like if we just removed guns and stopped all of the unintentional deaths by guns and all of the impulsive suicides and all of the family relationship killings in the home, the number of lives saved there, do those outweigh the damage done, the protecting of your home and, and rape and the other examples? So the question is, is which of these is the greater good? And so if there are more lives saved by restricting guns, then I would still say that we should restrict guns. Okay. Um, so, so far we've been talking about just the, the raw data, the statistics. My second argument that I made, so I, I made two points in my opening. First, that the actual research doesn't show that guns are associated with increased violence or suicide. Second, even if the research did show that guns were associated with increased gun violence or suicides or harms in general, there should still be a presumption in favor of reasonably permissive gun laws. I'm curious what you think about my second argument. Well, I'd essentially say the same thing. I think that everyone has a right to life. And if removing guns and taking away your freedom to defend yourself ends up saving more people's lives, I still think that would be a better utilitarian or consequential decision to make, even if it takes away your freedom. So let, let, let me offer an example. So suppose that, because so let me, well, actually, let me ask you, are, are you a utilitarian? I wrote my own model of objective morality, so not exactly, no. Okay, so, well, let, let me give you a scenario and I'll see what you think about it. So let's say that I'm a doctor at a hospital. I have five people in need of um, organ transplants. They're all going to die without, if they don't get a transplant. In walks a healthy guy in for a checkup. I notice he's got all the organs he needs. 
would it be morally permissible for me to kill that one guy and take his five organs to save, take his organs to save the five people, assuming that it would help the greater good? No, because he has sovereignty over himself as his body. And that's the modified trolley problem. Okay. And, and so you would say the same thing for the fat man example of the trolley problem. That, right, that would be... he should have sovereignty over, yeah. Okay. So what that seems to show is that we have this intuition that rights, uh, for example, whether it be the right to life or, or the right to self-sovereignty as you cash it out, rights have this function of resisting appeals to utility. So even if it would benefit the greater good that I violate your right, I still shouldn't violate your right because your right has this overriding or unrelenting strength. Well, if rights have that, um, that kind of power, then it would stand to reason that if I have the right to life and I have the right to self-defense derived from the right to life, then my right to self-defense also resists appeals to the greater good. Meaning that even if uh, my owning a gun uh, puts you at a greater risk of dying, I should still be allowed to own a gun and carry it around because uh, it's a reasonable means of self-defense. It, it's just an extension of my right to self-defense, which is an extension of my right to life. So if you if if you adopt the, if if you don't adopt the utilitarian approach, which I assume you don't, then given the nature of rights as having this this um, unrelenting uh, power behind it, wouldn't that mean that even if the harms outweighed the benefits, we should still allow people to uh, we should still we should still allow, you know, gen generally permissive gun laws. Well, only some rights have that, like the right to your organs, but you you don't have the right to drink as much as you want and then drive, even though you should still have freedom over yourself. So there are certain rights that don't give you carte blanche to do what you want, and I would say the right to own a gun would be more like having the right to drink and drive. I mean, it'd be nice if we could do whatever we wanted to, but that causes too much harm to other people to be classified under the thing as like your organs. Like you definitely have rights over your organs and your body and your mm -hmm. freedom to live, but that does not include the right to drink and drive, and that does not include does not necessarily include the right to own a gun. Well, I think there are relevant differences here. I don't. I I wouldn't say there is that there would be even a prima facie right to drink and drive to begin with. But the difference here is that the right to own a gun is directly connected with your right to life insofar as it's an extension of your ability to protect yourself. Whereas the, the right, if you want to call it, to drink and drive is just something that's an extension of, you know, leisure or recreation or I, I don't drink and drive, so I, I wouldn't know the the roots behind why somebody want to do that. But I, I think the point is, though, that uh, firearms ownership is connected with the protection of your rights in a way that the right, even, even the right to drink alcohol, for example, right? Uh, suppose we have a right to drink alcohol. Well, that doesn't seem to me to be essential to the protection of your other rights, whereas self-defense is an integral part of having rights to begin with. If you don't have the right to self-defense, in what real sense do you have rights at all? Right. I sort of agree with you, but I definitely think the gun is more on the alcohol side. You do not need a gun. Like there are 
everyone in Australia who doesn't have a gun, everyone in the UK who doesn't have a gun, they live just fine. There are hundreds of millions of people all over the world who don't have a gun and they don't ever need it. A gun is not something that is commonly needed in everyday parlance. If your heart, if you go into a doctor's office and the doctor wants to take all of your organs, those are something that you're going to need the next day or you're going to die. A gun isn't. So a gun is more like that alcohol thing where it's not a necessity for your life. It's not a necessity for your protection of life. It's just a helpful, useful tool. Okay, let me give let's let me give you a, a scenario. Suppose, for the sake of argument, uh, setting up the scenario. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that the harms did outweigh the benefits. Uh, now, suppose that I am walking at night, I have a gun on me, and I'm confronted by a group of people intent on causing me harm. Uh, they they proceed to you know make threats and you know advance towards me, whereas whereupon I draw my gun and say. Um, Stop, don't come any closer. Now, suppose they snatch my gun from me. Is my right to self-defense violated? Well, on your view, it would seem to be that because the harms outweigh the benefits, I don't have the right to own a gun. And so in snatching my gun from me, they don't really violate my right to self-defense because my right to self-defense doesn't um, extend to that scenario. Rather, they would be violating my right to property, but they wouldn't be violating my right to self-defense. So the question is, in snatching the gun from me, would they be violating my right to self-defense? Absolutely not. What Really? No, because they haven't harmed you in any way. All they've done is taken your gun away. So that's theft, but there's no harm to your body. There's no threat well, to your self-defense. It, it, it's stipulated in the scenario that they're going to cause me harm. And it's as, as a precursor to doing that, they snatched my gun from me. Wouldn't that be a violation of my right to self-defense? No, the snatching of the gun isn't, isn't an action that hurts you. If they actually hurt you, that action would be a violation of your right to self-defense or violation of sovereignty. But well, the snatching of the gun isn't a violation of your self-defense at all. Well, self-defense is violated when you're prevented uh, from taking effective means to protect yourself. Self-defense isn't, self-defense is violated um, when you know somebody harms you, but that's also that's that's more of a violation of your right to autonomy, right to life, however you frame frame that frame that. But self-defense is concerned primarily with doing something to prevent an attack or to resist an attack. And so, if somebody um, uh, snatches my gun from you, if somebody prevents me from taking self-protective measures they are violating my right to self-defense, even if they haven't caused me harm yet. Uh, when they do cause me harm, that's a, that, that is also a right, or that's also a violation of my right to self-defense, but harm is not, physical harm to me is not necessary for my right to self-defense to be violated. So, in, in the scenario I offer, it seems to me pretty clear that if somebody's charging me about to attack me, I pull my gun, and he snatches my gun from me, preventing me from defending myself, he has violated my right to self-defense. Well, that's why in my example I said, only, if they only snatch the gun, it's not. Because if you imagine like you have your gun in your car and I break into your car and steal your gun, I'm not violating your right to self-defense because you're not in any danger of any kind of def defensive action or offensive action. So it's only a theft if I'm just taking the gun. It would be a violation of your self-defense only if that would be followed up by some action of violence. But if I'm just taking the gun, that's not in any way. So, so because your your point was was that if I consider gun rights not to be necessary, like organ rights or something, then taking the gun away would be like a violation in some sense of similar, comparable to taking away your organs because it's necessary for life. But the gun isn't necessary for life. 
people can take your gun without you having to have any need to use it. And so it's just a theft. It's just a tool. Well, I mean, in general, I would say there are plenty of people who can live, you know, very productive lives without having a gun. What I'm trying to, the, the intuition I'm trying to elicit is that if, if you want to say that the right to own a gun is overridden by the harms, that means that nobody has a right to own a gun. And so that in that scenario I offered, if the gun's forcefully taken away, preventing an effective self-defense, that there is no right to self-defense violated. But that, that seems wrong because in that situation, even if um, the harms outweigh the benefits, he still has the, the uh, me in question, the person in question still has the right to defend himself. So let, let, me, let, me, let me narrow it down then. Uh, I'm walking at night, person's gonna charge me, causing me harm. I pull out a gun, he snatches my gun away, he hits my gun away, preventing me from defending myself, whereupon he assaults me. Now, on your view, I didn't have the right to own a gun to begin with. I didn't have that self-defense right to own a gun. So in, so, so in pushing the gun away from me, he does nothing wrong. Now, he does something wrong in assaulting me, but in preventing me from defending myself, he does nothing wrong because I didn't have the right to that particular self-defense tool. But that just seems to me to be wrong. Um, yes, uh, one of the reasons why his action is wrong is because he's causing me physical harm. But another reason why his action is wrong is because he is preventing me from, if, from mounting an effective self-defense with a gun. And so that, that would seem to I'm not, I'm not following your argument there because to me, I don't, see any, I don't see that second thing. I don't understand where the connection is here. I definitely okay. see it's wrong for him to hurt you. I don't mm -hmm. see it's wrong for him to deny your right to self-defense there. I don't see a problem with that. Okay, so uh, let me start from the beginning. Assume for the sake of argument that harms that way the benefits, you would say correctly that I don't have a right to own a gun, right? Yes. Okay, um, so if I don't have a right to own a gun, is anything, so in that scenario, you know, I'm walking down the street at night, um, guy wants to cause me harm, I pull out my gun, which I don't have a right to, he snatches the gun away, Preventing me from mounting an preventing me from mounting an effective self defense. Now, since I didn't have a right to that um, gun to begin with, on your view, it would follow that no right is violated because I didn't have a right to own the gun to begin with, and so I did not have a right to use it in self defense. And so, in taking it away from me, no rights violated beyond just the mere right to property. Right. I would agree with that. I would say that you don't have a right to the gun and him simply knocking the gun away, which you know that could be considered assault, but ignoring that, just knocking the gun away would not violate any of your rights because you don't have like an intrinsic human right to a gun. So it would still be wrong for him to harm you after that, but simply knocking the gun away would not violate any of your innate human rights. Well, it seems to me that it is violating the right to self-defense because in knocking the gun away, he's preventing me from defending myself. Let's say that you know he knocks the gun away from me. I'm defenseless. I can't do anything. He, he starts beating me to a pulp. Part of the reason why it's wrong is because he's beating me to a pulp. But another reason why he's doing something wrong is because he forcefully prevented me from doing something to prevent him from beating me to a pulp. See, so there's a double rights violation here. First, the obvious rights violation is me being beat to a pulp, 
The second rights violation is that he prevented me from taking necessary steps to prevent him from beating me to a pulp. So we both agree that him attacking me is a rights violation, but it would also, it seems to me rather self-evident that if he prevents me from defending myself, that is a violation of my right to self-defense. And it's a violation of my right to self-defense because he deprived me of a tool I needed to defend myself in that scenario. Well, to me, it seems like we're, we're arguing over like, is that an innate human kind of a right or is it a, like a property right, like a law-given right kind of thing? I see it as more of a property right. You're a pro you have a property right to own a gun and him slapping the gun away may or stealing it would take away from your property right, but that is not an innate human right, whereas you seem to be arguing that it's an innate human right to own a gun. Oh, no, I, I don't think guns are. I don't think there's an innate human right to own a gun. Guns are artifacts that are not integral. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, like self-defense. You're like making it an extension of self-defense, and self-defense is like an innate human right or something like that. Yeah. So the, the, the derivation goes like this: right to life, right to self-defense, right to own a gun. If you violate uh, the right to own a gun, you in turn violate the right to self-defense and the right to life because the right to self-defense just is the right to self. The right to own a gun just is an extension or a specific means of mounting a self-defense in that instance. So. If I'm going to mount a defense and you snatch my gun away from me, you prevent me from defending myself. And in preventing me from defending myself, that action violates my right to self-defense. So the action of, sna of snatching the gun away or hitting the gun away violates my right to self-defense. But on your view, it would, you, you, you say that if the harm outweighs the benefits, there isn't a self-defense right to own guns, which conflicts with the natural intuition we have in that case where we're hitting somebody's gun away, preventing them from defending themselves, um, interferes with his right of self-defense. Well, so I would agree with the first one. I agree with the fact that we have human rights uh, and we have this right to self-defense. I do not agree that that entails a gun because it's situational. Like you could make the same argument for a tank and say, well, someone took away my tank and there could be the situation where I need a tank to defend myself. Therefore, I have a right to a tank. So the, the, this extension from the self-defense to this particular item that you need for self-defense is contingent on the situation, and the situations can be assessed based on like how often do they happen. And the vast majority of people all around the world do not need a gun to defend themselves. It's kind of like they, don't, they also don't need a tank to defend themselves. There could be some situations where they would, but that doesn't then, then entitle them to own a tank, just like it doesn't entitle them to own a gun. Sure, I, I, I agree it's situational, but I would say that Given the circumstances in the United States, uh, if you find yourself in a situation in which you do need to defend yourself, it's almost always going to be something that can be done with a gun, whereas a tank is not proportionate to the typical kind of self-defense situation you would find. That said, I would say that there are circumstances in which the right to self-defense does actually generate a right to own a tank. Let's say that I live in the Middle East and that I'm constantly under threat of attack by ISIS or whatever, right? Arguably, my right to self-defense generates a right to own perhaps a select fire AK-47 or even a grenade or a machine gun. So the specific tool uh, that I can use in self-defense is, is dictated by the situation or the, the, the typical self-defense circumstance. And I would say that in the United States, basically all the self-defense situations you find yourself in 
can be resolved using a handgun, whereas a tank is just not necessary. So I think there's a big difference here. Right, I totally agree. But it's not the fact that the, any situation could be resolved with a gun. It's how often do these situations occur? So for me, it's the same. Like if you're in the Middle East and you you could potentially be in, in lots and lots of war, war situations where a tank can save your life. It's pretty regular that a tank could save your life. And so it may be included into a right to life kind of a thing. But if it happened extremely rarely, like it wouldn't, it may not even happen in a million people's lifetimes, and maybe only one person may need a tank. Well, then it doesn't justify having a tank as a human right that you could own a tank. So if the situation that you need a gun to defend yourself or to defend your life is so low, then that doesn't then give everyone the right to own a gun. So that's my argument is that if it is significantly rare enough that you need a gun to defend yourself, you thereby don't have the right to own a gun for self-defense because it's not necessary simply due to the, the prevalence of the situations that would it would be necessary. Got about a two-minute well, warning. Oh, to okay, so very briefly, I think there's a confusion here between the risk of encountering a scenario in which you might need a gun and the effectiveness of a gun in use in self, when used in self-defense. So... Granted, you know, de depending on where you live, fight the, the, the probability of finding yourself in a situation in which you will need to fight for your life is going to be very low. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the right to an adequate means of self-defense when that situation does occur. And given that in the United States, suppose, I mean, we can suppose for the sake of argument that your risk of victimization is very low. But at the same time, the victimization attempts that do occur in the United States, even though the, the absolute number may be very low or whatever, the, the vast majority of victimization attempts that do occur uh, can be resolved by the use of a gun. And so what matters is not so much the frequency of self-defense situations, but the circumstances of that situation. So I may never need a gun to defend myself, but if I do find myself in a situation where I do, the vast majority of those kinds of circumstances can be solved by a gun. And so I have a prima facie right to own a gun. And I would disagree. I would say that it's the number of instances that you would need a gun is that what would justify whether or not you have a right to have it, not simply the fact that it can resolve a situation. Are we good on time? I think with that, we should probably jump to the Q&A, which very excited about is we have a lot of really interesting questions. It's going to be a blast. And uh, thanks so much for your questions. We, we closed the Q&A uh, intake a little while ago, maybe about five minutes ago. So sorry if you, if you just popped in, but we, I don't think we'll even maybe get to all of the questions in the list we have, because we try to, we want to respect the time of the debaters and they're in different time zones. It's only seven for me, but um, most people are ahead of me. So with that, uh, thanks so much for your super chat genius tracks totally appreciate it he says I understand and agree with the right to defend oneself that said the bumper sticker prideful fetishizing of guns is gross to me make America gentlemen again and ladies wink so thank you for that I'm not sure see if that is for someone in particular You got it. Okay. How is that a question? Uh, well, it was we. If it's a super chat, we allow people to make a comment during the Q and A. Okay. So uh, thanks so much, Genius Trash. Appreciate that super chat. And oh, new subscribers, Greg and Chad. 
thanks for subscribing. We're glad to have you here. We are trying to build, as mentioned, kind of an eclectic community. So we're trying to be nonpartisan. Hold us accountable if you ever feel like we are unfair to anybody. So Brian Stevens, thanks for your question. He asks, since Tom loves the true libertarian argument, if the harms outweigh the good, in parentheses, his, oh, this is Tom. Sorry about that. Question, since since Tim, for sure Tim, sorry. Wait, so he's asking Tom or me? It is for Tim. It, it is for you, Tim. Sorry about that. Long day. Um, he says, since Tim loves the true libertarian argument, if the harms outweigh the good, his hypothetical, in parentheses, wouldn't the increased harm to his life damage his freedom? Well, there was a difference between harms that directly infringe on my freedom and um, other kinds of harms that infringe on other areas of my life. So no, I don't, I don't see how just because there are more harms that, my, that those harms would necessarily infringe on that specific area of my life. There are many different kinds of harms. So I don't see the implication there. You got it. Thanks very much. Next question, Nick J asks, question for both. Please provide the sources from whence they got their information. I've read most of them off. Uh, I'll just, I'm just going to send them to, to James and he can post them. I'll we just email those, them to him. You bet. We could put those in the description. So, uh, And that's for both debaters, of course. Uh, for me, so if you go to my website, timshow.org, which should be in the description, uh, there was one paper on my website titled The Moral Case for Gun Ownership. And I have basically every, most of the the numbers that I uh, brought up tonight are in there. There's about 46 footnotes, and uh, you can consult those footnotes for um, the studies I rely on. I don't have a, a list of studies that I use specifically for tonight, but if you look at, I, I've written like four or five peer-reviewed articles on guns, and so just look at the uh, references section uh, for those numbers. Gotcha. Thanks so much. And Nick J also asks, question for both, have either of you used a gun in a firing range before? Yep. Yep, I own quite a few. You got it. Thanks so much. Uh, forgive me if, if I mispronounce this avatar name. Crisper CAS9 asks, uh, I think he means he referring to Tim here because uh, he must have seen your past debate, Tim. He says, does he not see the hypocrisy in saying to err on the side of liberty for guns, which are, and he puts in parentheses, which are definitionally dangerous and not marijuana. No, absolutely not. There is, I, I, I should have said I built into the qualification all things being equal. Uh, with the, the qualification err on the side of liberty was, I, I use that um, in reference to Tom's point that we don't know either way where the harms and benefits lie. My point is that if we don't know either way, then we can err on the side of liberty. But in the case of marijuana, we do know where the evidence weighs. And so while there is a prima facie presumption in favor of liberty, that prima facie presumption is overridden. So no, I don't think there was any kind of inconsistency between my opposition uh, for marijuana legalization and um, my V1 guns. 
Gotcha. Thanks. Oh, and that's uh, CRISPR-Cas9. The, how to pronounce it? CRISPR-Cas9. It's a thing in biology that uh, injects, or takes a sheet of DNA, cuts a section out, and then puts a new section of DNA in it. It's actually really cool. Really interesting. Thank you for letting me know that. I appreciate that. And next up, the truest asks to Tim. How many school massacres were committed with weapons other than guns in the U.S. in the last 10 years? Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But I'm not... I guess the implication of this is supposed to be that, well, guns are used for the majority of uh, school massacres. And, okay, I'm, I'm fine accepting that. Although I should note, the deadliest um, school killing in history... I believe it was in the 1920s, the Bath school bombings, a bomb was used and about 100 people, 100 something people were killed. So, um, sure, um, I'm happy to say that guns are responsible for a lot of mass school shootings, but it's not as if guns are the only thing or the most deadly thing in terms of raw number count. Gotcha, thanks so much. Brian Stevens asks, is it possible that someone might think they are using a gun in self-defense, but are actually being offensive? And then in parentheses puts Trayvon Martin. Well, I, I think George Zimmerman is completely justified in shooting Trayvon Martin, so I don't know that's a good example. Um, but sure, there are cases where people um, have used guns irresponsibly, or cases where people thought they were defending themselves or later became the aggressor, so sure. That does happen. I mean, not, yeah, people use guns in self-defense. People also misuse guns. So the idea that, you know, guns are good at defending yourself doesn't imply that, you know, everybody will be completely responsible with guns. Yeah, we should acknowledge even, you know, people who are ardent su supporters of gun rights should acknowledge that, yeah, there are people who uh, are going to misuse their right to carry a gun. Gotcha. Thanks so much. Next we have Nick J asks, question for T-Jump. Would you concede that cultural influences play a large role in gun violence that varies from nation to nation? Yep, definitely. Gotcha. Thanks so much. Genius. Well, I, I actually, I wanted to add something to that. If you go to my paper, uh, the one I referenced earlier, and you look at, I believe footnote one of the footnotes i think it's um one of the early ones there are two studies i referenced where um basically the differences in gun homicide and gun suicide across all other countries are basically attributed completely to these cultural differences and once you control for those cultural differences the number uh vanishes gotcha or the disparity vanishes sorry you bet Thanks, and see that one me. Yes. That's that's footnote seven, by the way. There is a study from the American Journal of Criminal Justice and Sociological Spectrum. So footnote seven in my paper with the moral case for gun ownership. You got it. Thanks so much. These questions are moving way faster than I thought. So we can take a few more questions. So uh, sorry about that. My mistake. I thought we had more than we had. So if you if you do have questions, folks, like feel free to shoot them in the chat. We only got two on the list. So uh, the truest asks, does Tim think we should be able to own nuclear bombs as citizens? No, I don't. Because 
the kind of threats that nuclear bombs are designed for are virtually, they're not the kind of threats that we should expect to encounter. Now, now in some hypothetical scenario in which, um, you know, another country takes is invading the United States and um, I am the only one charged with its defense, maybe then I have a right to nuclear weapons, but I don't have a right right now to own a nuclear weapon. I mean, sure, there are fanciful scenarios that can justify a right to basically anything, but here and now there is no right to own a nuclear weapon. You got it. Thanks so much. Oh, question, follow-up question. Why aren't the, the cases that own a gun, aren't those pretty much fanciful based on the low probability that they're going to occur? Why, aren't, why don't you consider those pretty much fanciful? Well, so there's, I distinguish between two things. So first is the likelihood of, be, of befalling a victimization attempt in general. And second is the kind of victimization attempts that one is likely to face if one does encounter a victimization attempt. And so my response to the nuclear weapons argument is that if I do encounter a victimization attempt, the kind of victimization attempt that um, is typical of victimization attempts in the country isn't going to be one where I need a nuclear weapon. And that's different from the raw probability of befalling a general victimization attempt to begin with. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Next up, Brian Stevens asks, if I claim a Gatling gun, forgive me, I don't know if I'm saying it was Gatling right. gun. Gatling gun. Gatling. Is, is mm -hmm. something I'll use to protect my house. Do I have the right to own a Gatling gun? Um, given given the technology, uh, or given the technological features of a Gatling gun, I can't see how a Gatling gun is, is more dangerous than an AR-15 with a binary trigger. So I think if we do have a right to an AR-15 with a binary trigger, sure, we do have a right to a Gatling gun. Gatling guns, if you know what a Gatling gun is, they're kind of hard to wield. They're a crank-powered gun that must be mounted to a carriage, and so the, it's not the kind of gun that you can bring to bear quickly. You can do more damage with an AR-15 with a binary trigger than you can with a Gatling gun. So what about a minigun, like on a Blackhawk? Uh, right now, in the circumstances in the United States right now, you don't need a minigun. Can there conceivably a be a circumstance in which you need a minigun? Sure. Gotcha. Zombie apocalypse. Yeah, zombie apocalypse. You can have a minigun. Thank you very much. Uh, Lucky Machete, nice avatar picture, by the way, asks, question for both, ever had the dream where you pull out a gun and shoot the bank robbers? I've had plenty of dreams where I've needed to use a gun, and then at the last minute, my finger becomes stiff. But I've never had a dream in which I've had wow. to shoot a bank robber. Wow. Uh, in my dream, I used a lightsaber. <laughs> Very nice. Are you guys both Star Wars fans? I have a feeling you guys both would be Star Wars fans. I have never seen Star Wars. Oh, Tim, man, okay. Sorry. Tim loses the debate right now. You know what? <laughs> I know if he saw it, he'd love it. So next up, uh, Nick J. Oh, okay. Nick J is pointing out that Will C got your question, Will. Thanks for your question. He asks, are either of these two gentlemen familiar with John, Lott's, uh, John Lott Jr.'s statistics? Yes. Yes. The, the quote I studied about the National Academy of Science who put out a comprehensive study included many of his studies and showed that they do not indicate the conclusion he is advocating for and that they're unreliable. 
I am familiar with John Lott, and I do, I have cited a few of his studies, but I don't rely on um, most of his research. I Lott focuses more on the effects of concealed carry laws. My focus, at least with regard to the empirical stuff, is the number of defensive gun uses, which Lott doesn't really touch on. You got it. Thank you very much. Question from The Truest. In case you guys were watching the Trinity debates the other night, uh, The Truest was the gentleman who was arguing he's uh, in those debates. He's taking the position that is polytheistic. Good to see you, The Truest. Thanks for being here and asking your question. He says, do the debaters think Hollywood has convinced Americans they're Wyatt Earp? No. I think that actually most violent crime has essentially been going down worldwide. I like to cite uh, Stephen Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature. Media does not cause violence, an increase in violence. It's just, it's just false. It doesn't do that. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. You know, I don't know. Maybe this person here or there has been influenced by the media, but in general, I don't really think. Um, I mean, it's not to say that glorified violence is a good thing. Uh, there, are, there are certainly moral issues with that but i don't i wouldn't say that one of it is because it causes more people to go out and mass shootings do mass shootings oh well that is except that one exception where they they do glorify mass shootings and putting them on the news all the time and that then does cause more mass shootings because okay. they see it as a i would i would definitely say that does do it really interesting thank you guys and then jeremy uh Jeremy Pace, thanks for your question. He asked, why does Sweden have just as many guns per capita as the United States, but far less gun violence? And he wanted to ask both. Because they have better gun regulation, lots and lots of more gun regulation. They have mandatory military service, and most of the guns are owned by the government, and you essentially apply for a loan to loan the gun from the government, so they're all owned by the government. They have, like, uh... uh 21-week boot camp service with an extra 300 days of mandatory military service after that if you go for the long routes. They have massively extraordinary uh, gun gun restrictions. If we married that, it would be a huge success in getting rid of gun crime here in the United States. Well, what the studies show, well, the studies basically just compare countries cross-nationally in terms of you know, the raw numbers. They They don't really look at the question of why or which regulation or this or that factor is responsible for this disparity. And so the best we can do is maybe speculate. Um, my inclination is more towards cultural factors because if you look at other countries, you have the exact opposite. You have low gun prevalence and high crime, which seems to suggest to me that Perhaps there's something else. Maybe guns do have some kind of effect, but this is overshadowed by other um, uh, factors that will need to be the subject of more research. You got it. Thanks so much. Next question. Mystical Banana asks, who is better at Call of Duty, Tim or T-Jump? No, I haven't played Call I'm... of Duty since I was 15. It's about the same for me. I can, I can, I can play a pretty good Overwatch game, but that's the extent of my video gaming. You got to thank you very much, both of you. And uh, Chad McIntosh, thanks for your question, and uh, glad to have you here, Chad. He says, 
Can you please ask T-Jump to answer Tim's thought experiment about the robber stealing the gun in yes or no? I think he's asking like uh, for a yes or no answer. I think I did. I think I said that the robber stealing the gun is not a violation of the innate human rights or the innate right of self-defense that Tim is advocating for. It would be a violation of property rights, but not the innate human rights that Tim is advocating for. You got it. And with that, thanks so much for your questions, everybody. And most of all, thanks for the debaters. We know that they just got an intrinsic pleasure out of debating. However, we're thankful they share that intrinsic joy with us here at Modern Day Debate. And uh, also, feel free to hit that like button just to help uh, if you thought, hey, I totally dug this debate, which I have to say I definitely did. This is very interesting. Uh, and the like button basically just helps the video kind of launch into the uh, YouTube algorithm. So uh, again, thank you for our debaters. And with that, thanks so much for your questions, everybody. We hope that you have a great night. And a reminder, one last time, the debaters' links are in the description, so you can check out their links below. Thanks for being here, and keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. Have a great night, everybody. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.